0: Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith. This week it is the Cambridge Science Festival and in recognition we've been along to explore some of the scientific experiments and demonstrations that have been laid on and we're debating this week's programme to answering your science questions including we'll find out why yawning is or isn't contagious. Also how old is the oldest tree on earth? It might surprise you. And does the DNA in food survive the journey through the digestive tract? Well that's food for thought indeed isn't it? Plus, how the number of takeaways that you pass on the way to work affects your chances of putting on weight. A new Cambridge study has the answer.
1: The Naked Scientists
0: podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. <laughs> First up, let's meet the panel we have of big brains assembled to answer the questions for you this week. Richard Hollingham is a space boffin and also an environmental reporter. Hello, Richard. Hello. Tell us
1: a bit about you. I love space. I love space exploration. I love space travel, but I really don't want to go there. (laughs) Why not? It's scary. (laughs) Really? It's really scary. It's really big and it's scary. If someone said, I'll pay for you to have a trip. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I'd have to go. Funnily enough, I want to be in space. but I don't want to go there and back again. Being in space would be fantastic. You look at the images from the International Space Station, looking down on the Earth. That would be amazing. Going there in a Soyuz capsule at the top of a 1960s Russian rocket and then coming down in this fireball—no way.
0: Someone else who's a bit spacey in the nicest possible way. Tamala Masil is
1: with us this week as well. Hello, Tamala.
2: Hello.
0: But you're an astronomer slash am, space yeah. scientist. Would you go into space?
2: I would, yeah, that's how I got into astronomy, was actually wanting to be an astronaut from about age seven. So I would definitely happily sit on top of that rocket and why, blast off.
0: Why are you up there now?
2: Well, getting the PhD <laughs> first along the way. So I'm working on uh, jets from black holes, is my topic of interest.
0: I suppose most people don't realise, actually, that these people who are astronauts are incredibly qualified scientists, aren't they? Very they much, Me across Me a the surprise. Board. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. I ended up interviewing these two guys who published this paper in Nature... It was a theoretical paper, but the idea was if we spotted an asteroid on collision course with the Earth, how could we move it? And they'd come up with this spacecraft, which was very heavy, and they position it floating near the asteroid and use the weak gravitational force exerted by their vehicle against the asteroid to slowly deflect it off course. Yeah, that's fascinating. And right? I thought, these guys are just physicists, but they're astronauts as well. And you think, wow, you know, they're actually doing cutting-edge research mm. as well as flying into space.
2: In their spare time, yeah. <laughs>
0: So is going to answer anything spacey as well, and specifically perhaps black holes. Also with us, Ginny Smith. Ginny, tell us a bit about you.
3: I'm a naked scientist, and my area of interest is a little bit closer to home. It's brains. So I'm a psychologist, so anything about brains and behaviour throw my way. Space is great, but we've got this amazingly unexplored area right inside our heads that we actually know <laughs> almost less about than we know about space. So. In
0: some people's case, the space is more than others, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ginny. So any questions? questions for Ginny on how the brain works. And I think you were a chemist in a past life as well, to some extent, weren't you? i so doubled in a
3: little bit of chemistry, a bit of evolution. So I try my hand at a few different things.
0: Jack of all trades, Ginny Smith. And we have a very special guest with us this week. Tom Burgoyne has never been on the radio before. He's a geographer and he's published an amazing paper this week in the British Medical Journal, which we'll catch up with later. But he's agreed to lend his geographical knowledge to us this week. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the programme. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having so me. So tell us potted history of Tom
4: Burgoyne. Who are you? What do you do? I'm a geographer by background. I guess now I'd say I was a public health scientist and
0: I work at the Centre for Diet and Activity Research here in Cambridge. Superb. So if you have a question for any of our assembled team, you can get in touch now. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or the email address is chris at scientists.com Right, let's kick off straight away with a question from John who's standing by. Hello, John. Hi. You've actually got two questions. Let's have the yeah, first one.
5: Two questions that have been burning holes in my brain and I figure you guys are the ones to handle it. Well, first, in my bathroom just to be sure, I've got a spring-driven scales and a counterbalance scales. And I wonder if I went to Mars, which would give the more accurate reading between, you know, the two. And the other is why do people gape open-mouthed when something really astonishing happens? It's not pain, it's not fear, it's not anger. It's a very special response when people are just sort of stunned and their mouths kind of gape open.
0: We'll take the first one first. So Mars, basically you're referring to those what we would dub old-fashioned scales where you stood on this sort of flat plate and then you slid this weight along a horizontal bar until it balanced and, and that told you what your weight was. You're saying that would work on Mars equally well on Earth but a normal scales with the sort of dial on it wouldn't work on Mars, is that what you're saying? That
5: would be my guess, but I've never been there, Okay, so I'm well, not sure.
1: <laughs> Richard, I've never been there either, and um, I love, John, that you've got two different types of scale in your bathroom. That's fantastic. I avoid both of them. You've hit on the difference between weight and mass. So a scale in your bathroom, traditional scale in your bathroom, uses a spring. That is measuring a force, which is mass times acceleration, which is the mass times the acceleration, which on Earth is gravity. So that measurement would be different on Mars because gravity is less and even more different on the Moon because, again, gravity is less. If you look at one of the counterbalance ones, though, that does measure mass. So you have U on one side, and your masses on the other, so your kilos or pounds if you're American, on the other side, that should work equally well both on Earth and on Mars because gravity is affecting both sides of that balance equally.
0: There right, John. So, so bottom line is, because it's a counterbalance system, regardless of what the gravity field is, it's going to attract both sets of mass by the same amount, and therefore it doesn't matter whether the gravity is high or low, it will pull you down as hard as it's pulling the mass that's balancing
1: you down, so it should still work.
5: When we send an astronaut to Mars, he's got to take a counterbalance weight with him to keep his weight out of control.
1: Or they could just calculate it based on Mars' gravity rather than on Earth's gravity. So you just need some scales with a spring. You could have spring scales, but just adapted for Mars gravity with a scale adapted for Mars gravity rather than Earth gravity.
0: Right. right. Let's move on to the other question, which was you were referring to why people gape open-mouthed when something surprises them. Ginny, what do you, what do you think about that?
3: So emotions are a really interesting thing. And if you think about them evolutionarily, the point of emotions and the point of the facial expressions we make when we're expressing emotions is to communicate with other people. So there's been some interesting research that goes back as far as Darwin and more recently Paul Ekman, who actually looked at people around the world and how they express different emotions. And they found that there were some basic emotions that are expressed in basically the same way. So wherever you go in the world, if someone's angry, They'll sort of furrow their brow and maybe bare their teeth. And if they're fearful, they'll widen their eyes and possibly open their mouth. And I think surprise probably is linked to fear a bit. So it could just be that these emotions, we all have to do the same thing, because that's the only way that we'll know what the other person is feeling. Another idea for why exactly surprise is an open mouth could be that it is sort of a subset of fear. And when you're fearful, what your body does is it tries to prepare to deal with the thing that's frightening you. So it prepares to either run away or fight the flight or fight response. And in doing that, one of the things that it needs is more oxygen because it needs to prepare your muscles to either fight or to run away. So opening your mouth and sort of taking a big breath is going to get lots of oxygen into your blood and might help deal with that. And widening your eyes hopefully gets more light in so you can see better. So it could be all related to that sort of thing.
0: Lots of people will be agape at the standard of the answers being provided here on The Naked Scientist this week. Uh, John, I hope that susses things out for you.
5: Yeah. Very nice. Thank you. Just, just the quality I expected from this crowd.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> lovely question here from uh, Alexander Hartley, who says, does the DNA of food survive transit through the human digestive system? This is very interesting because originally people thought the answer to this was no. But then about four years ago, there was a lovely paper published in the journal Nature where scientists had been taking samples of seawater. They had studied the DNA of the seawater samples, and they had found this combination of genes which broke down a certain Of sugars in uh, what we know is seaweed. And they thought this was brand new. No one had discovered this before. So they had a look in this database of genes, which is all over the world. And they were rather annoyed to see that someone had published a very similar DNA sequence previously. And they thought, oh, who's done that? That's annoying. And they found that these were all from Japan and they all corresponded to samples taken from the intestines of people in Japan. And they realised what's happened is that people eating sushi in Japan, because that's got seaweed and the bacteria they were studying in the sea were eating seaweed, the people had eaten some seaweed, the DNA from the microbes in the seaweed had leached out into their intestines and those people's own intestinal bacteria had picked up the DNA and incorporated the genes into it. Which is, as one person put it, rather like you going into a restaurant and uh, someone equipping you with a brand new knife and fork to eat a rather tough steak with because you see a knife and fork on this, I think I'll have that one instead of the, the blunt knife I've got already. So yes, DNA can survive transit through the human digestive tract and other organisms can actually
1: incorporate it, which I think, I think that's absolutely stunning. No, it's amazing, isn't it? I'm stunned that you look at the process of something passing through us And everything is subjected to and the acid and the attack by the body and all the bacteria. And yet DNA can survive that. That is incredible. Tamela I've got a question here from Spinoza and
0: uh, Spinoza says how old is the Milky Way the age of the sun and the earth we know but I've not heard anyone specify the age of the galaxy the Milky Way is it known and if so how do they know and uh, by the way what a splendid series of programs you guys are making that's very kind of him. thank you very much
2: so absolutely right we do know the age of the sun and the earth is about four and a half billion years old the way we start looking at how old our whole older galaxy is by looking at the contents of it, so looking at the age of the stars that it contains. If we look at the stars in our Milky Way, we find that some of them are actually about 13 billion years old, so really dating back to the very, very early beginning of the, the universe. Possibly there's even an older generation of stars which have already died out. But we can look at the abundance of heavier elements within our galaxy. And these are only formed in supernova explosions, so the death of stars, or through cosmic ray interactions. And this gives us an idea, sort of like carbon dating, how old our galaxy must be. Um, Some estimates put about 13.2 billion years old so that gives you a rough answer. But if you're talking about the actual shape of the spiral galaxy itself, that's probably much younger. So maybe 10 billion years or so for it to actually have built up into the structure that we recognise today. It's still
0: pretty old, though, isn't it, when you think uh, that the universe as a whole is only 13.8 or so billion years old. It's really
2: old, yeah, yeah. So,
0: so the Milky Way is quite a, quite an old
1: thing. Well, that's what I was wondering. Does that mean that pretty much all the galaxies came fully formed very quickly after the Big Bang?
2: Quick in the timescale of the whole universe, I suppose. But they did build up from, initially they were just small perturbations, uh, local areas in the universe that were denser than others. These started to form stars. The stars gravitationally bound together to globular clusters and stuff. And these, we believe that there was this hierarchy building up into the galaxies that we recognise that are spirals and elliptical galaxies.
0: Thank you very much, Tamala. Let's go to the phones. Stephen Tucker's on the line. Hello, Stephen. Hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, we're very well, thank you. What would you like to talk about? Well, I'm going to bring us back down to earth a bit, I guess. So when my long-haired ragdoll cat startles my barely domesticated short-haired kitten, the kitten's tail puffs
3: out and the fur on her back stands up all the way down her spine. The long-haired cat, no matter how scared he gets, doesn't really extend his fur. So I thought cats did this when they were frightened or excited, and I was told it might be so they'd look larger But what mechanism allows them to do this? And why don't they do it with all their fur? And is it in any way related to how the hair stands up on the back of a human's neck when he or she gets scared?
0: Ginny, do you get uh, goose pimples and the hair prickling on the back of your neck when you get scared? So,
3: yeah, I think this is probably a very similar mechanism. So when we get cold or when we get scared, the muscles that hold the base of our hair in place contract. And that makes the hairs on our arms or on the back of our neck stand up. But you might notice that it doesn't happen to the hair on our heads. And that's probably for the same reason that it doesn't happen to your long-haired cat. And that's just that the hair's too long. So these are only very tiny differences that are happening in the skin. But because the hair on your arms is quite light, it's quite short, it can make it stand up it would just be too much weight and too difficult to actually make a very long-haired cat's hair stand up. And if you think about the evolution of this, yes, way, way back when cats were alley cats, it was probably great to be able to puff up your tail and make yourself look bigger and scare off competitors, but... Actually, there's no negativity for your long-haired cat to not be able to do that, because I'm assuming it's pretty pampered and doesn't have to fight off other cats very often. So there's been no selective pressure to keep that ability. So it doesn't really matter that they can't do it anymore.
0: There you go, Stephen. You've got a pampered cat. That's the problem. (laughs) Good to have you on the programme. If you'd like to get in touch with us here on The Naked Scientist With me, Chris Smith And uh, our guest this week, our guest panel answering your questions Richard Hollingham, Tamla Masil, Ginny Smith And also we have Tom Burgoyne as our special guest this week He's a geographer So if you have some geography questions And what, what else is within your sort of remit, Tom? What else could you talk about? What, when you did geography at university What sort of things did you cover? Uh, nothing about capital cities or rivers or clouds What's the capital of the Philippines? Oh, don't, don't,
4: <laughs> don't do it to me Anything about public health, maybe something about epidemiology. So
0: anything to do with public health and how that relates to world geography. That's Tom's bag. Tamela, here's one for you. Sia Bulela has got in touch on Twitter. Can laser beams propel human vessels in space?
2: Ooh, good question. To be honest, I'd probably defer that to Richard since he's our space vehicle. Oh, I knew you'd I have no
1: idea. I have no idea. Um, yeah, I, I, there is a pressure is, from light, isn't there? Yes, there, and there then... is pressure from light. So yes, in theory, should be able to. So we've got the development of solar sails, for exactly. instance. Exactly, that's what I was thinking of as well. Yeah. You can certainly use the propulsion from the stream of charged particles that are coming from the sun to move along so if you imagine the sun it's belting out these particles all the time so if you can use those you can actually use that to push you along Um, it's
2: the radiation as well it's actually photons providing a pressure yeah and when when you look at pictures of stellar nurseries we have lots of really bright young stars you see these clouds that have been hollowed out because of that radiation pressure just pushing the matter away so definitely photons do provide a pressure in terms of
1: lasers, that's a different kind So it to work, really isn't it? you know off? do you? No,
0: yeah. no, I, I, know, I know something that knows me to show off very slightly. Yes. Which is there's this lovely thing called the Yorp effect, Y O R P, which is the Yarkovsky O'Keeffe Radseyevsky Padak effect, which is probably why it's called Yorp. Yeah. And this actually is exactly the phenomenon you're describing. We know, for instance, where the impactor that wiped out the dinosaurs came from. It came from the asteroid belt, it was dislodged in the vicinity of Mars, probably about seventy million years ago and the thing that probably did the dislodging was light because these asteroids, if you've got light impacting on one side of them the photons of light are going to impart momentum to them and give them a nudge, and this can cause the things to move a little bit. And this can make them then bash into other things, and that's exactly what happened, we think. It nudged the asteroid a little bit and caused it to break up and ultimately impact on the Earth. But this effect is very real, and with lots of light falling on a big surface for a long time, it does impart a nudge, and that nudge can ultimately move very big things.
1: Along a course, I can answer a different question. I can answer a different question on lasers in space, which <laughs> doesn't it doesn't address the propulsion system. They are using lasers in space right now as a new satellite, AlphaSat, which was launched around about this time last year. That uses lasers for communication because you can do then speed of light communication. It's in geostationary orbit, so it's way very high above the Earth, sort of sitting there above the Earth. It can communicate it's using lasers to communicate with satellites which are in low Earth orbit, which are only. Uh, few hundred kilometres above the earth.
0: Of course probably one of the most famous laser beams is the one which is bouncing off of a mirror on the surface of the moon because lots of people say how do we know how far it is to the moon how do we know that people went to the moon well they put a mirror there and there's a laser beam being bounced every day between the earth and the moon and that's how we know that the moon is getting about two centimetres further from the earth every year why is it doing that because as it goes around the earth it's attracting water on the Earth's surface towards it in a tidal bulge but because the earth is turning that bulge is slightly ahead of the moon so it's exerting a pull on the moon and this means the moon rather like a slingshot is speeding up a bit the earth's losing a bit of energy the moon's gaining a bit of energy and if it's going faster the gravity between the two isn't isn't changing so the moon therefore is going to move away very slightly so year on year it is slowly escaping so in fact tides are getting slightly smaller on earth so you know if we were to wait i don't know a billion years or so we, we might have very very small tides which would probably come as a relief to people who live along
1: the east coast next time there's a storm surge and isn't it amazing that there's an apollo era more than 40 year old experiment still working we're still using apollo science on the moon so we've sort of failed to answer the question really but we talked about lasers so that's fine there's a related question actually which is
0: The same person, Sia Bulela, also says, can I produce electricity out of heat? And that's, of course, what a lot of space probes are doing, isn't it? They're using the thermoelectric effect
1: the spacecraft can generate energy all sorts of ways you're using solar panels using light you can use heat there's also a great thing you can use in space which is the difference in temperature from one side of your spacecraft to the other side of your spacecraft so you've got a difference of a few hundred degrees between one side and the other which you know is that it's like you've got a refrigerator in space so you can do all sorts of cool things with that as well
0: i think the voyager probe is using it's, Plut- it's plutonium,
1: plutonium, right? I think, and it's only got a few more years left in it, in theory. But then they said that about Voyager for the last five, ten years, and it's still going strong, and it's still probably now left the solar system. They still can't tell quite where it so is. So you
0: said it's got a few more years left in it. So they said mm. that about me a few years ago. <laughs> there we are. Rakesh is on the line. Hello, Rakesh. Uh, hi, Chris. Fire away. It's regarding uh, the theory of relativity and the light. So I'm kind of, you know, like I have been uh, trying to understand theory of relativity for the past three, four years. And as per this, like if a body tries to move faster and tries to reach the speed of light, the time kind of slows down. So I was just wondering if photon 100 million light years away and it takes 100 million years to reach us and it's traveling at the speed of light. And so for the photon, the light has basically stopped. So what does it mean? How how the time has stopped for a photon if it has taken 100 million years to reach us over here? Tamala, what do you think? Nice, easy question for uh, (laughs) 20 past (laughs) six on a Sunday evening. you've
2: probably been studying relativity longer than I have, but I'll, I'll do my best. So absolutely right. If the particle is approaching speed of light and it had a clock on it, we as observers of that particle going extremely fast would see that time slows down and approaches this sort of eventual stopping it is impossible to imagine the frame of reference at the speed of light. Special relativity doesn't really deal with that. It takes the speed of light as a constant, and that's regardless of what speed you're going at. So even if you're 99% the speed of light, you're still measuring C as C. So in that sense, it is difficult to answer, like, what what kind of time is the photon experiencing? But just to say that if you were a particle moving at 99% the speed of light... In your own frame of reference, time is moving normally. You have a much faster ticking clock compared to the observer that sees that time is nearly slowed down. And actually you've probably heard of this, but we've experimentally confirmed time dilation here on Earth. There was an experiment back in the 70s that put these atomic clocks on commercial aircraft and had them fly around the Earth, both in the eastward direction and the westward direction, and were able to compare, once they got back on Earth, with sort of naval observatory clocks, and actually there was this difference because they were moving faster than the Earth's rotation at some point.
0: The Great Pyramids also distort time, don't they, because they're very massive and so they bend space-time, so yeah, time, time, time travels at a different coming, rate. Exactly. Uh, yes, yeah. which, is, which again, that, that really does blow my mind, well, the whole concept of you go near something very massive. And, uh, and time changes. So you go to Egypt, sit next to a pyramid and actually time mm. is distorted. So maybe the Egyptians were onto something when they said that they were going to try and make their, their pharaohs immortal. Because relative <laughs> to the rest of them, so they, well, are, they mean, are aging more slowly.
2: To extend this even further, if you, if you go to a black hole and kind of start falling into a black hole, your observer is seeing that time has nearly stopped for you as you fall towards it because you've warped that time so much. So, yeah, lots of interesting things going on.
0: Pamela, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, also with Richard Hollingham, Tamala Masseal, Ginny Smith and Tom Burgoyne, who we're going to be talking to in just a second. If you'd like to get in touch with us here on the programme to ask a question, chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Let's catch up on a couple of news stories first though. So Ginny, you've been looking this week at yawning and why it is or isn't in some cases contagious.
3: Yes, exactly. So we all know what yawning is, but there are actually two forms. There's the form that you do when you're tired or you're bored. And then there's the other form, which is contagious yawning, which is what happens when you see someone else yawn or even just hear people talking about yawning. I predict that by the end of this news story, at least one person in this studio will have yawned. And this is really interesting because actually, humans aren't the only ones who do it. Chimps do it as well. And even dogs can catch their owners yawn. But no one really knows why it happens. And it had been thought that it related to empathy. So you're you're trying to empathise with someone, understand what they're feeling, so you're sort of mirroring them. But this new study from a group from Duke University in North Carolina actually studied over 300 people. So it was quite a big sample size. And they found that actually empathy didn't relate to how likely you were to yawn after watching a three-minute video of people yawning. They tested people twice, they got them to watch this video, and some of them they tested in the lab, and then some of them at home, and some of them it was the lab twice, and lots of different combinations. And what they did find, which is really interesting, is that it was a very stable trait, how likely you were to yawn. So if you yawned the first time you watched it, you're likely to yawn the second time. And they were trying to work out what other sort of personality traits or factors might affect your likelihood of yawning.
0: So were there some people that were really yawn resistant then? Yes. So we need them as listeners, don't we?
3: (laughs) Well, no, because I'm assuming you're not talking about contagious yawning. You're worried about people yawning through being bored.
0: And it doesn't apply?
3: No, this is just contagious yawning. But yeah, they found some people just don't yawn at all. Some people are really resistant to it. And actually, they asked those people whether they were just suppressing it. And they said no. They said they didn't feel like doing it. I'm a contagious yawner even when just reading this paper I was yawning a lot Um, I'm, I'm kind of suppressing one now in fact so they were looking for different factors that might explain why some people yawn and why others don't and they found that age was important so older people are actually less likely to have contagious yawns but that only explained 8% of the variation.
0: And that wasn't because they were asleep already?
3: <laughs> no, it wasn't right, that.
0: Okay. Just checking. Um,
3: but yeah, 8%, which is a tiny amount of this variation. And once that had been taken into account, empathy and other things like the time of day they were watching the video, the people's intelligence, none of that seemed to have an effect. So the group are now wondering whether there's a genetic link, because if it is such a stable trait, that some people are yawners and some people aren't, it may be that that's something to do with genetics. And this all might sound quite frivolous, but actually we know that people who have conditions like schizophrenia and autism don't experience contagious yawning as much. So if we can understand a bit about why some people do and why some people don't, that might shed some light on those kind of conditions.
0: Ginny, thanks very much. Uh, Let's go to a question here from Ed Wilson, who says, how many genes does it take to produce a unique fingerprint a genetic fingerprint for each individual the answer is Ed, it actually takes none because the way in which they made and this is alec jeffries who got a, a medal actually for the discovery of the concept of genetic fingerprinting back in the late 1980s the way this works is that you use a part of your genetic code called vntrs variable number tandem repeats there are some parts of your genetic code that don't code directly for a protein which you could detect in your cells that's what genes normally do so you've got other bits of your DNA that don't code for things like that and because they don't code for things, if changes happen to them, it doesn't matter to how the cell works. And so certain bits of genetic sequence in those particular regions can be copied many, many times. And it doesn't matter because it doesn't affect how the cell works. So one person might have 15 copies and another person might have 500. And if you cut the DNA up with molecular pairs of scissors called restriction enzymes, and they cut in various places in amongst these so-called variable number tandem repeats, you will get chunks of DNA of different sizes for every single person. And that's how a genetic fingerprint works. We're not necessarily sequencing genes, although we can these days. Actually, those genetic fingerprints were based on random amplifications or copies of bits of DNA that don't actually necessarily do anything. Ginny, we've got a phone call here from Laurie. Hello, Laurie. Hello. Fire away.
2: My question has to do with eyesight. And I'm studying medicine, so I know all the physiology and the biochemistry behind, you know, light falling on the retina and then it changes in GTP, etc., and going to the brain. But my question is, how does the brain know that all those chemicals and the synapses, and then you have the electrical input? How does it make an image out of that? How do, like, I know the association, like, with going to the brain and saying, okay, that's an apple, that's that. But how do you see?
3: So seeing is. All about experiencing. And you're right, it's very weird to think that all these signals can suddenly turn into a picture, a representation of the world. But that's actually what your brain is doing for you every day. It turns this sort of mess of information into something that'll help you navigate the world. And it does that through experience. So you've seen many, many times a table, and you know that it has four legs and it usually has a rectangular top. So when you get information coming in, which is telling you there's a weird sort of rhomboid shape with only three legs, your brain doesn't say, oh, there's a really strange shaped table over there. What your brain says is, we're seeing a table from an angle, and there will be another leg, you just can't see it. And it does all that through experience. Actually, you're not taking in as much information all the time as you think you do. We all like to think that, all the time we're taking in everything that's around us but actually that's not true your brain is very good at just picking out the things that are important for your survival so we're very good at detecting movement because that might mean something that's going to attack you so you'll be drawn to that but we actually don't really pay attention to the rest of the world all the time your brain just picks out those really important things and if you look at some visual illusions they can tell you some of these clever ways that our brain uses. So lots of things to do with perspective, you'll assume that things are bigger if they're further away. And you can trick your brain using these illusions. And that's what psychologists actually use to work out how we determine this kind of representation of the world.
2: But what if I've never seen something before? Like what if you were, let's say, put onto a spaceship and you're brought to something and you don't know what that object is?
3: Well, that's really interesting. I don't know if I've had the experience where I've seen like a plastic bag in the corner of my eye and thought it was a cat or something. So your brain is always trying to guess what things are. And if it's something that's completely new, it would probably take a while and you'd probably be looking at something and trying to work out what it was. And you'd probably end up looking at it from a few different angles before you could work out what shape it is. But most of the time, We've seen most things before, so it's not too difficult. But yeah, if it was something brand new, you would have to go down to the very basic, what colours and what shapes are coming into your eye before you can build up that kind of 3D representation of what it actually is. Okay, cool.
0: Thank you. Laurie, thanks very much for joining us on the programme. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith with a special science festival-inspired edition of The Naked Scientist. Also here, Richard Hollingham, who presents the Space Boffins podcast, a great listen If you haven't caught up with it, you can find that on the internet. Also, Tamla Masil, who is a space scientist at the University of Cambridge. Ginny Smith is a naked scientist and an erstwhile psychologist in a former life, a chemist as well. And also Tom Burgoyne, who is a geographer. We'll come to Tom in just two ticks. Tamla quick question for you. Mark, in bletchley says if you were to sneeze we've talked about various bodily functions but sneezing in space what would be the consequences would all the horrid bits be floating around in the weightless environment and therefore could that potentially be a problem
2: actually that's a funny question because i was thinking of this the other day <laughs> of having a lunchtime chat but um if we're in space i'm going to assume you're either in the space vehicle or you're in your spacesuit you've got your helmet on i was wondering you know what if you sn- i don't actually know the answer but it- you know, what if you sneeze when you're on your spacesuit you need an extra vehicle and walk and suddenly, you know, gets on all of your, your space shield? Maybe you need windscreen wipers or something. Uh, Richard looks like he knows what might happen. <laughs> well, could be but, bad. Well,
1: it? I was, I could tell you, and not, sneezing is very similar. I was talking to actually Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut, about sweating space. Mm. And he writes about this in his book. So you're on the treadmill in the International Space Station. And, you know, if you normally sweat, well, sweat will normally stay on your skin. In the space station, when you're in this microgravity environment, the sweat literally pings off everywhere. Sure, these little droplets. Yeah, these little drops of sweat. So you have to keep wiping yourself down. Otherwise, and this is so unpleasant, you (laughs) zap your crewmates with your sweat. And and it's equally true with a sneeze. So if a sneeze is coming out of your nose and heading for one of your crewmates, it will just keep going.
3: So sort of lethal. Would you also be propelled backwards if you sneezed? Because... With the whole equal and opposite forces, I know that if you, say, open a, a fire extinguisher when you're on a wheelie chair, you get propelled backwards. So if you sneezed in space, would you start flying off in the
1: other direction? Just by your nose points, doesn't it? I mean, it, you'd normally sneeze with your... you know, yeah. be yeah. propelled upwards, some sort yeah, of Yeah, okay. well, system. Well, would suppose, you
2: go upwards, then? I uh, suppose,
1: yes, is the answer. You'd
2: have to hold on yeah, to something.
1: You would, because it doesn't take much to start moving. The big problem that the astronauts have in the space is the stopping. So, if they're moving heavy weights around the space station, for instance, they can pick up heavy weights, no problem at all, and they can start moving with it. And then they realize, oh no, the bulkhead's coming up. How do I stop? How do I stop? <laughs> that could get embarrassing. Uh, you're listening to
0: The Naked Scientists. If you'd like to get in touch with your questions, you can also tweet at naked scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now it is the Cambridge Science Festival happening at the moment and one of the really big highlights, certainly for me in the past and, and certainly this year no less, of the Science Festival is Science on Saturday and the University of Cambridge throws open its doors and there are some wonderful students who lay on all kinds of demonstrations for the general public including young and earned up-and-coming scientists of tomorrow and Harriet Johnson went along to see some of the demonstrations that were laid on yesterday.
2: I'm at the Science Festival in Cambridge, where there's loads of scientific experiments being demonstrated by the students of Cambridge University. First, we're with Isabel.
4: What we have
3: here is a solution of sodium acetate, which we've dissolved in water, and we allowed it to cool down. What we're now going to do is we're going to add a C, some of this crystal that's already preformed.
2: So at the minute, the liquid is crystal clear, and then, oh,
3: what's
6: happened? Can you see that? It's like oh,
2: it does look frozen. The whole cup has turned into a hard cloudiness, hasn't it? Yeah.
6: Give that a feel. Yes. Yeah, what does it feel like? It's hot. Yeah.
3: So here we had to heat it up to dissolve the solid in the first place into liquid. And now when it's forming a solid from the solution, the heat energy is released. It's amazing, isn't it?
6: Yeah. Okay, my name's Ivan, and this experiment is glow sticks. Have you used glow sticks before?
3: Yeah, you, like, break them
6: and they glow. Yeah, so I have one here. Have
3: you seen Why do you places? have to break them? Because there's chemicals inside and they get released when you break
6: it. Yeah, so if you break this one, so that's quite bright. How do you think we can stop it from glowing, apart from, like, waiting a really, really long you time? You could, like,
3: freeze the chemicals or something again. That's
6: true. We've actually got a bowl of ice here. So if you put one end in, can you see the difference between the two. The one that's not in the ice that's glowing more brightly than the one that's yeah, what so was cool. in the eyes. So how do you think we can make this one glow as brightly as this one again? You
3: could warm it up with your hands. Yeah,
6: so you try that now.
3: It glows again. Yeah, it
6: glows again. <laughs> Hi, I'm Adam. If we drop a paperclip down onto the water, as long as we don't drop it from too high, instead of sinking like we'd expect, the paperclip will actually float on the surface. Try and look at it so the light is reflecting on the surface and you can see there's a big sort of dent in the water. That's because the paperclip is pushing down onto the surface. And the surface is pushing back and actually holding the paperclip up. And that's all due to something called surface tension. It's like an elastic band. It stretches itself as much as it can. Because water really hates touching air. It only wants to touch other bits of water.
5: And that surface is so strong, and so
6: tight, that it can actually hold up a paperclip. Wow, that's
3: amazing.
6: Now, does your mum ever make you do the washing up? <laughs> oh, you're very lucky. But the thing I can actually do for fun, amazingly, when doing washing up, is I can take this detergent. Inside it, it's it got all these little molecules with a head and a tail. And the head really loves water, and the tail really hates it. And when I put the detergent in the water, all the water loves and sticks to the heads and moves away from the tails, and it makes the water much happier to be near the air and be a surface. So what do you think will happen when I put the detergent near the paper clip? it will sink. Let's see. The paper clip is shot across, right across the surface of the water. And then if I do a little bit more, it'll sink straight away. That was good. So you were bang on when you said it would sink, but why do you think it moved? Because when it touched it, the bubble went and hit the paper clip so it moved across. Ah, it hasn't actually done that. It's actually because, if I go back to this rubber band... When the water's on the surface, it's stretched in all directions like that. And if you imagine, something that's in the middle is being pulled equally in all directions. When I add the detergent, it breaks the surface tension in one spot, like there. You see that when I broke the surface tension, the elastic band pinged forward? That's because when the surface tension there is really low, the paperclip is being pulled in every direction except that one. So the paperclip gets dragged along really quickly.
0: Harriet Johnson, who was at the Cambridge Science Festival, which is happening all of this week. And you can find out more on the web if you just Google Cambridge Science Festival. Mm-hmm. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. And in the studio, Richard Hollingham, Tamla Maciel, and Ginny Smith, and also Tom Burgoyne. Now, Tom is a geographer, and he published a paper this week. I've got a copy of it here in the British Medical Journal. This paper is titled Associations between Exposure to Takeaway Food Outlets, Takeaway Food Consumption and Body Weight in Cambridgeshire. So, Tom... What was the reason for it? Yeah, well, we know that levels of obesity in the UK are a major problem,
4: but that obesity itself is kind of complex and multifaceted. What we really wanted to do is explore the neighbourhood environment contribution to obesity and unhealthy diets. Really, I mean, you might say to me, isn't it obvious that neighbourhoods matter for health and that neighbourhoods matter for what we eat? And what I'd say really is that up until now, we haven't had the opportunity to answer that question scientifically and to really try and find a scientific answer.
0: So people had some idea that, There must be an association between retail outlets selling fast food and people potentially gaining a bit more weight, but there was no objective
4: data on it. There was no objective data, exactly. It seems like common sense, but when you think of the implications for something like this, where we're talking about modifying neighbourhoods potentially to make them more healthy, to help people make healthier choices, we really need those to be evidence-based decisions. Some rock-solid data to Mm -hmm. go on. So how did you do this? Well, basically, we took data for 5,500 individuals in Cambridgeshire and we counted the number of takeaway food outlets around where they lived, around where they worked and around their journeys from home to work. So we had kind of a measure of overall exposure to takeaway food outlets. And then we also knew how much these people weighed. We knew their body mass index and we knew how much takeaway food they consumed. So we kind of put those two things together, tried to see to what extent their exposure would explain those two outcomes. What did you find? People with the greatest overall access to takeaway food tended to be heavier, so they tended to have a BMI more than a unit. A body mass index, sorry, yeah. More than those least exposed by over a unit. They were also nearly twice as likely to be technically obese, and they would consume on the whole around 6 grams of additional takeaway food per day, which over the course of a week is about half a portion of French fries.
0: But over a lifetime, which, I mean, people pile on weight gently, they don't suddenly become overweight, so that actually, it doesn't sound like much, but actually extrapolated to you've lived somewhere for five years, could actually add up to quite a significant weight gain then
4: yeah absolutely even that small daily increase is still two extra kilograms of takeaway food per year and exactly it's about a repeated exposure and a repeated behavior. how did you work out what people were being exposed to on the way to work because that doesn't sound trivial i mean we kind of made a best guess really and said that they traveled from their home to their work along the shortest route along the street network which we allowed to differ depending on how they travel to work and you know the mode of travel and how frequently they use the mode of travel.
0: It was uh, an educated guess. And that yeah. tells you the route they took. What about the, the number of retail outlets that they would have seen then along uh, that route? Yeah. So we uh, we kind of drew a, a buffer
4: around that route and counted the number of food outlets. And we, we allowed that buffer, if you like, to vary depending on how they travel. So if they travel by car, we said they had greater exposure along their route because
0: they're presumably travelling faster than uh, if they're walking. If they're hungry, they might be going really fast. (laughs) Absolutely. But what did you find was the main determinant then? Was it the workplace? Was it the route to work? Or was it the home? Yeah, so we looked at overall exposure, but yeah, we looked at
4: domain-specific exposure as well. And workplace seemed to be particularly important. So these associations were particularly strong with workplace exposure. And I guess really that again makes sense. If you think about the types of foods you want when they're at work, you probably want ready prepared food, the kind of foods takeaway food outlets are selling. And also you've probably got a limited amount of time to take for lunch. So more proximal food outlets might be more important in that sense.
0: Does it not also just reflect where people spend the most time? So if those workers became unemployed, would the home environment become a stronger determinant compared with the workplace? Uh, We were looking at home and work, particularly because
4: people spend a lot of the the time in those two neighbourhoods. The characteristics of the sample we used actually meant that we didn't really have that many unemployed people. So we weren't able to look at that modification and look at unemployed people in particular to see about that neighbourhood influence, the home neighbourhood. That's something that we'd like to do, but something we couldn't do on this occasion.
0: Has this generated the sort of objective data that you would well, you were hoping it would, so that you can now say what we need to do in order to encourage people to have a healthier life is X. Are you in that position now? This is really
4: a first step. So this is a large study. This is the biggest study as far as we know and the most comprehensive study of this type in the field so far. But really, it's a hint of this association and, and a call to do more research. What it could lead to, of course, is supporting changes, modifying the neighbourhood environment in some way to help people make healthier food choices and help maintain a healthier weight. But really, we need a firm evidence base for that. And this is the first piece of the puzzle.
0: I wonder if it will reflect on house prices. People could begin to market their house. The asset value of their house will increase if there are not obesity risks in the, in the near vicinity. Yeah,
4: you're not the first person to suggest
0: that. <laughs> really? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm in the wrong game. Thank you very much. Tom Burgoyne is from Cambridge University and he published that work this week in the British Medical Journal. The weather's been dramatically better all of a sudden, hasn't it? And so this question is highly appropriate. Yusuf wants to know, Richard, does opening the sunroof on the car increase or decrease drag. I presume he means while he's
1: actually driving along. Yes, is the short answer. It will increase your drag because what you're doing by opening the sunroof of a car, you are disrupting the airflow. You're increasing drag. And it drags essentially, if you imagine it, all the molecules, all the stuff in the air that the car is hitting. So that's an increasing drag. What's interesting, if you go on from this, though, if you factor in air conditioning, it's a constant worry, isn't it, for people with air conditioning? If you turn the air conditioning on, then you are using more energy. But if you open the windows, then you're increasing drag. So is there a magic point? Is there a, an actual point where you could say, right, that speed, I need to lower the windows. And over that speed, I need to turn the air conditioning on. Yes, there is. And General Motors have done this research. And it depends on your type of car, but roughly around 40 miles an hour. So if you're under 40, so in a built-up area, generally it is more efficient to lower your windows. Above that, certainly on the motorway, it is better to shut your sunroof, shut your windows and use the air conditioning.
0: There you have it. But they haven't said anything about sunroof.
1: No, but it's going to be the same thing, isn't it? Windows, sunroof, same idea. But
0: also sunroof has a confounding factor, which is if you go up or fully back.
1: Oh, yes, you could do that. So, if you, I suppose if you went up, that's going to disrupt the airflow more, isn't it? Than if it was open and the air's going to come into the car. You also get the annoying whistle, I haven't really factored that in either. I've got you... a roof rack, so I get that annoying whistle. Yes, yeah, anyway. so you're really driving inefficiently. You should take that <laughs> yeah. off. well, yeah. actually, I've looked at
0: this, because my car logs its mileage consumption, and it's knocked, I think, probably 5%, five, five percent, I think, it's added the roof rack. It's but not that's huge, quite, it's sig- not huge. But
1: that's quite significant, given oh, the ta- how the much a, a tank of yeah. petrol costs to... Uh, diesel, to fill like diesel, in Diesel, case, yeah. Absolutely. Well, even more, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 5% of that. <laughs> yeah, but it's more miles to yeah.
0: gallon on a, on a diesel car, because it's more efficient fuel. Yeah, but 5% of that. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a lot, so I'll have to take my roof rack You will, yeah. I've got a question that Harriet picked up from the Science Festival yesterday. I'll play it to you.
1: My name's Anthony Risley, and I'm from New Zealand. And I'd like to know, do plants die of old age?
0: What do you guys think about that? Let's have a straw poll, if we can take the planty pun there. Uh, How old do you think the oldest plant
1: is on Earth, Richard? Oh, it's got to be thousands, hasn't it? It's got to be thousands. I'm going to go thousands. I'm going to go ten thousand. Ten thousand. Uh, what do you think, Tom? I'm
2: definitely thinking thousands as well. I'm from the west coast of the US. We've got these giant sequoia trees and the redwoods that are extremely old. Jenny. Yeah, I
3: don't know if you start thinking about
2: smaller things like algae type
3: things. I wonder if they can get technically even older than that. Uh,
0: let's ask Tom,
4: as the geographer. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I'm thinking thousands as well, and the mind goes straight away to redwoods,
0: but uh, I couldn't put a firm. Would it surprise you then that actually the oldest plant on Earth is at least 43,000 if not 135,000 years old. It's a Lamartia, King's Lamartia. It was found in southwestern Tasmania in the 1930s and the guy King who found it sent it off to the Botanical Society and they called it King's Lamartia in his honour and it's subsequently been examined in more detail. This plant is clearly, cannot reproduce because it's got three copies of its genetic material in its cells which means it 's genetically incapable of producing any seeds, so the plant can only grow by effectively cloning itself. in other words, a bit of the plant digs into the ground and puts down some roots and makes another side spin off plant. so the tissue is slowly growing and growing and growing from the same stock that 's been there for all that time. How do they know how old it is? Because they have found in the same region as the plants that are growing now in just one tiny part of Tasmania in southwestern Tasmania in, in Australia they 've found remnants in the fossil record, going back at least 35,000, if not 135,000 years, of plant tissue resembling very, very precisely, this existing plant, and they've carbon dated it to those ages. So it's, it looks so similar that they're happy to conclude that it must be the same plant, and therefore it must have been growing there for at least 135,000 years, possibly longer. And there are some pine trees, as you were saying, Tamela, which are in order of, you know, four and a half thousand years old. So there's certainly a lot of old stuff in the plant world.
3: That's pretty amazing. But actually, I was reading recently about an animal that scientists think may actually be effectively immortal, and it's a kind of jellyfish. And it has this weird life cycle where it can basically grow to its adult form, but then if times get a bit difficult and it's not getting enough food, it can revert back into its juvenile form. And it seems to be able to do this indefinitely, as long as it doesn't get eaten or die of disease or something. So they actually think that this might be an immortal animal, which is pretty incredible.
1: So, so the, the trick here is it's got to be able to replicate its DNA, but without introducing errors along the way. Yes,
0: and of course, plants, if they're that old, they have been replicated their genetic material for that long but then a plant has a much lower metabolic rate than certainly i do i can't speak for you richard but i'm guessing it's probably true and that being the case when you copy your dna and you grow your cells very very rapidly they're less likely to get damaged if they don't have this highly damaging environment that that a fast metabolism like ours tends to breed so i think that's probably why the trees are able to be more resilient and live for these extended periods of time you're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, also with Richard Hollingham, with Tamela Masseal, Ginny Smith and Tom Burgoyne. If you'd like to get a question into the show, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked scientists. Now, Comrade Higgins has got in touch and this is an interesting suggestion. And he, he suggests actually Tom might have a perspective on this as the geographer slash person talking about public health. But we won't put you on the spot, Tom, don't worry. Comrade says... Hi, Naked Scientists. I've often wondered whether it would be possible to eliminate the common cold by stockpiling food and water in every household and then everyone spending a week or 10 days or so in their home with only essential workers allowed out and those equipped with masks to prevent spread or infection. Given the number of lost days per person per year from colds, wouldn't this be an economically good thing or would we just get reinfected from animals and stuff in a few years like pigs and birds with the flu so who's in favor of every time we experience a cold we just isolate ourselves in the middle of nowhere until we get better what do you think richard
1: well it does drive me mad when you're in work and someone comes in with a streaming cold and then infects everyone else so yeah i'm i'm in favor i don't think it would work because you've got cold viruses just everywhere you'd have to disinfect the world Emily.
2: I mean, I, I don't know the the lifetime of the virus, but presumably they can outlast being outside of a human body for a while. But um, I completely agree. You can usually trace it back to a particular person that sneezed two weeks ago and then everyone got the cold afterwards, so it is quite annoying.
0: Yeah, I knew people at work like that. I mean, it's based on sort of sound mathematical principles, though, isn't it? Because when I was in South Africa, I was talking to a gentleman there who runs an antenatal clinic for people who are in the poorer end of society. And South Africa is an unusual country because it has a big problem with HIV, but it also has a lot of money and therefore can spend that money on drugs for HIV. So you tend to have a very high number of people in the population who have HIV who are treated. So he said perhaps 50% of the young women coming to antenatal clinic in his clinic have HIV. It's a dramatically high number. But he said to me, look, if you could stop the entire world having sex for three months, actually HIV would completely vanish because most of the transmissions that occur are when people are first infected and they're really, really infectious because they have no immune response to the virus. They've got very high levels of the virus in their bloodstream and that's when they're most likely to pass it on. The point Comrade's making, it seems a bit facetious, let's isolate ourselves, but actually it does have a sound mathematical point and taken to an extreme with a virus like HIV, you you could actually potentially knock it on the head but we know for a fact that that's just not going to happen because no one's going to do that but interesting all the same thank you for the email comrade uh Tamela, Stephen says how many years is it until we're able to get a photograph of a planet outside our solar system and he says i mean a real one like you'd see with the naked eye um, we might need some digitalized enhancements not a photo that shows the levels of temperatures or gases etc are we getting close to that now
2: We've actually taken direct pictures of exoplanets, but I'll say that this is still very much on the frontier of exoplanet studies. Early on, we were looking at just wobbles in the luminosity, the light from the star, or we're looking at how it wobbles in space as well. But now we're starting to actually get direct imaging. I will say that it's mostly in the infrared spectrum of radiation, although the Hubble Space Telescope has actually taken some images as well. If you look at these, they're pretty much that pale blue dot Image. So you have the bright star that's actually been blocked out by a filter, because otherwise we'd be blinded by its light. And next to it, you just see this tiny little dot that's the planet they've managed to isolate. And it actually is a very, very powerful image to say this is another world. So we've been doing this for some years, and I'll just say it is a very tricky thing to do. Um, you need to have very good understanding of the atmosphere that you're looking at. So if you're a ground-based telescope, you have to correct for what the atmosphere is doing in order to get a stable picture.
0: Pamela, thank you very much. It's amazing how fast it's moved on, though, and how far we have come, isn't it? When you think, you know, when I was at school, people hadn't really got to grips with the concept that there might be planets around other stars. No, it was early 90s that you finally got the first confirmed detection. Absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Ginny, as we move towards the top of the hour and the end of the show, Don Childers is wondering about the strength of a silverback gorilla compared to a man. Years ago, he says, I saw a silverback take a five-foot diameter truck tyre and mash it It would be very difficult for a big man to do that, just even picking the tyre up. How do the two compare?
3: So an adult gorilla is about six times stronger if you're talking about upper body strength than an adult human so that's why they could pick up that tyre without looking like they were breaking a sweat and if you think about it that makes sense because although gorillas mainly walk on the ground now they much more recently than us were swinging in the trees and they needed strong arms and even now they walk sort of on all fours so their arms are much more used to sort of support themselves than ours are and that's probably one of the reasons that they're so strong they are actually remarkably gentle in the wild so although they could do a lot of damage they don't tend to.
0: Well, that's reassuring, isn't it? I mean, you go and see people going and seeing these gorillas and and, and I'm often surprised, actually, that you can get quite that close to them.
3: Yeah, well, there's a lo- some lovely footage of David Attenborough where, I mean, you wouldn't be allowed to do this now because you'd be worried about infecting them and causing them harm. But he was basically playing with a load of gorillas and they're sort of climbing all over him and they really do sort of accept him after a while. It, it looks lovely. I'd like to have a go at that. I was <laughs>
0: watching uh, an edition of a programme about the Great Barrier Reef last night and there were whales that were coming along to inspect divers so animals really do have a degree of curiosity about us don't they
3: definitely particularly the most intelligent animals which are the primates the dolphins and whales and also birds like crows which are all very curious very interested in us and very intelligent
0: Ginny, thank you very much. That's it for this week, and thank you to Richard Hollingham, Tamala Masil, Ginny Smith and Tom Burgoyne. That's our show for this week. We'll be back at the same time next week where we're investigating Raspberry Pi and computer programming. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. We're supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and goodbye.